if I have a hereditary weakness in breaking down branched chain amino acids, what cofactors do I need to consider for vitamins and minerals? And do I need to restrict my protein when losing weight? This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. We will now go to the, the last runner-up. And this question comes from Melanie, and she, her question in my summary is, if I have a hereditary weakness in breaking down branched-chain amino acids, what cofactors do I need to consider, and do I need to restrict my protein when losing weight? Her full question is, what exactly does it mean that leucine is a ketogenic amino acid? If a person has a hereditary weakness for branched-chain amino acid catabolism, would this impact the type of diet they might choose to lose weight? Should they limit protein if it will increase their need for nutrients like biotin, what are all the possible cofactors we should consider supplementing to support leucine catabolism? All right, so I'm going to answer this first by answering what are the cofactors that you need to break down branched-chain amino acids? All right, so all the branched-chain amino acids are leucine, isoleucine, and valine. And they all have very similar metabolism. In some case, the enzyme, in one case, the enzyme is shared. And in most cases, the enzymes are analogous and require similar cofactors, but there are some differences. So in the first, if you look at these numbers, this, this chart comes from the branch chain organic acidemia aciduria chapter of the excuse me the newest edition of inborn metabolic diseases diagnosis and treatment by Sadubray and other editors so and then i i added the cofactors so this was this was my research that i layered on top of this diagram so leucine isoleucine and valine all pass through the same first enzyme in common and this is the branch chain alpha ketoacid dehydrogenase complex. And its cofactors are B1, which is thiamine, B2, which is riboflavin, B3, which is niacin, B5, which is pantothenic acid, lipoic acid, calcium, and magnesium. So this first step is shared across all three branch chain amino acids. And when it's when we refer to pantothenic acid, we're referring to it here as coenzyme A. And so what you see is two oxoisocaproic acid after this step is converted to isovaleryl-CoA, that's because B5 or pantothenic acid in the form of CoA captured the metabolite as a CoA ester. And then you see the CoA stays there. So in a way, B5 is a cofactor for the rest of this, but B5 isn't used again. It's just staying there in the form of CoA that later gets cleaved after this step. Now, after you get to the, past the first step, you no longer have the, the first enzyme shared in common. You now have analogous enzymes. So in the case of leucine, you have the enzyme isovaleryl-CoA dehydrogenase, which is dependent on B2, which is riboflavin. In the case of isoleucine, you have enzyme number six. That's short branch-chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenase, 
And this is also dependent on riboflavin or B2 because it's the analogous enzyme as the dehydrogenase over in leucine. If we look at valine, we have a different enzyme, number nine, which is isobutyl-CoA dehydrogenase. And this is a riboflavin-dependent enzyme. So even though these are three dependent enzymes catalyzing the second step, they're all dependent equally on riboflavin because they're all analogous enzymes doing analogous reactions. After you get to this part, it gets a little bit different. So in the case of leucine, you have a biotin-dependent step that is not present in the other two branched-chain amino acids. You have um, enzyme number three, which is beta-methylcrotonyl-CoA carboxylase. If you read my recent biotin article, you saw the cases of, of genetic beta-methylcrotonyl-CoA uh, carboxylase deficiency as a, bio, as a sometimes and perhaps always biotin-responsive disorder. And that enzyme requires biotin as well as ATP. Biotin-dependent reactions are anabolic. They are ATP-dependent. Everything that depends on ATP depends on magnesium because most ATP functions as a magnesium chelate, although there's a small amount of ATP that also has, uh, that is also chelated with other uh, divalent cationic minerals, which means minerals with plus two charges. But mag magnesium is overwhelmingly the dominant one. Now, in the third step with isoleucine, we actually have a reversible non-enzymatic reaction between the product of the second reaction, tiglul-CoA, uh, and uh, 2-methyl-3-hydroxybutyl-CoA before we get to the next enzyme. Going back to these steps, the third and fourth step in leucine metabolism, we have the biotin-dependent bio step, and then we have the fourth step catal uh, catalyzed by 3-methyl-glutaconyl-CoA hydratase. The the two water depend uh, the several water dependent steps with hydrolases and uh, and um, yeah with hy hydrolases and hydrotases in all of this are the steps that have no cofactors and so we have this water dependent step in the fourth step in leucine catabolism in isoleucine um, the fourth step is a, de a dehydrogenase. Um, that's 2-methyl-3-hydroxybutyl-CoA dehydrogenase. The dehydrogenases tend to be niacin-dependent, as is the case here. And then in valine, we have one, two, three. <clears throat> the fourth step is 3-hydroxyisobutyl-CoA uh, hydrolase. That's a water-dependent step with no cofactors. And then the fifth step is enzyme number 12, which is... 3-hydroxyisobutyric acid dehydrogenase. Dehydrogenases are generally niacin-dependent, as is the case here. Um, and so we have this analogous niacin-dependent step in isoleucine and valine metabolism that is not present in leucine metabolism. And then at the end, <clears throat> the fifth step in leucine catabolism is catalyzed by 3-hydroxy-3-methylglutyl-CoA lyase, which is dependent on magnesium or manganese that can substitute for each other. And then in the case of isoleucine, we have the eighth enzyme, which is 2-methyl-acetyl-CoA thiolase, which is dependent on potassium and chloride. This enzyme is the same enzyme, the same thiolase enzyme that is used in ketone utilization. And so some people have a, a disorder in this enzyme, it's a thiolase deficiency, and their disorder will become 
activated on a ketogenic diet because they're using the limited capacity of that enzyme for the ketones and they don't have it available for the last type of isoleucine metabolism. And potassium and chloride, you know, theoretically have therapeutic value there because this enzyme is dependent on the on those two minerals. Over in valine, we have the thirteenth enzyme, which is methylmalonic semialdehyde dehydrogenase, which is dependent on pantothenate and niacin. And in both of these cases, for isoleucine and valine, but not for leucine, we have the production of propionyl CoA. And propionyl CoA carboxylase is needed to clear that, which is dependent on biotin and magnesium and ATP. Propionyl CoA carboxylase is another biotin dependent isolated carboxylase deficiency discussed in the article that I had put out uh, two days ago. And then we have that results in the production of methylmalonyl CoA, which we need methylmalonyl CoA mutase to turn into succinyl CoA with the help of vitamin B12 and magnesium. And so note that many people are using methylmalonyl, methylmalonic acid rising in, as an indicator of B12 deficiency, apart from the fact that more rarely this could be a genetic methylmal, methylmalonic acidemia, although it's probably not that rare to have it being influenced by carrier status for genetic methylmalonic acidemia, which no one ever knows they have. If you have a biotin deficiency, you're going to have low methylmalonic, low methylmalonic acid. And so, you know, just briefly, there's someone on my Facebook who was saying that her daughter was in and out of the ER with alternating acidosis and alkalosis. And uh, <clears throat> anyone who ever measured her methylmalonic acid thought it was great because it was low and that indicated that her B12 was, was deficient. And actually indicated that she needed biotin. Biotin resolved all her symptoms, although I suspect that she had a genetic methylmalonic acidemia that was biotin responsive and bi high-dose biotin resolved all the symptoms um, because it activated the enzyme. And so, you know, <clears throat> to sum this up, what are, the, what are the nutrients you need in total to metabolize branched-chain amino acids? Well, they're thiamine, riboflavin, niacin, pantothenic acid and biotin, so five uh, and B12, so six of the seven B vitamins, you might as well need all of them, um, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and chloride as minerals that you definitely need with manganese playing a possible substitution for magnesium in one of the enzymes. So. Basically, six of the seven B vitamins, leaving out folate. And of course, you know, every, every, every reaction is dependent on other ones behind it. So it's not to say that folate's not going to do anything to branch chain amino acids, but, <clears throat> you know, you could, you could have, um, if you have any block in ATP production, you're going to wind up having secondary effects in this pathway. But the nutrients in the first layer of the onion, the nutrients that you need are six of the seven B vitamins, B1, B2, B3, B5, B7, and B12, lipoate, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and chloride. Those are the nutrients that you need to metabolize branched-chain amino acids. Now, if you, have, you say you have a hereditary weakness in branched-chain amino acid metabolism, well, which gene? Because there's... Um, 
this goes up to 17 because I removed two that weren't relevant to this discussion. So there's 15 relevant enzymes that have genetic disorders in them. You know, the, the most common ones are deficiencies. So like the deficiency of the uh, branch chain alpha ketoacid dehydrogenase in step one affects all of them and is responsible for maple syrup urine disease and is often thiamine responsive. And then uh, deficiency of isovaleric acidemia is not generally thought to be vitamin responsive, but it could be riboflavin responsive specifically. And this causes um, people. This causes you to potentially smell like sweaty feet instead of maple syrup. Uh, deficiency of beta methylcrotonyl CoA carboxylase makes you smell like uh, makes your urine smell like the urine of tomcats, and it can be biotin responsive. Um, but the thing is. There's sort of there's several principles here. So if you look at a textbook such as the one that I took this figure from, there is what I think is p- potentially misleading statements that some of these are bi- are nutrient responsive and some aren't. I went back and looked at the case reports, and you know I found that they were dismissing genetic deficiencies for being nutrient responsive on the basis in biotin of trying 4.5 to 20 milligrams of biotin. But there's a case report of a not a deficiency here, but a deficient a deficiency in a different biotin responsive enzyme or biotin dependent enzyme where it's considered non biotin responsive and irrevocably lethal in infancy or early childhood and this this child was maintained he- relatively healthy and alive. For many years after her death sentence on 1.2 grams of biotin per day. So I think that casts into question every case report that claims a genetic disease wasn't nutrient responsive because they might have just 100-fold underdosed the vitamin. And so, you know, generally these mutations are not, they're not null because if you have no enzyme, it's almost like completely irretrievably embryonically lethal. So you never have the passing on or even the chance to treat the infant in someone who has no enzyme whatsoever, unless there's another enzyme that offers compensation. So you never have a case where you could totally rule out any nutrient responsiveness. However, it may be the case that, for example, the branch chain alpha keto acid dehydrogenase, that enzyme has three components that all have, it's not that every part of the enzyme is dependent on all of these, it's that each component has its own active site that has specific nutrient dependency. So the specific mutation might increase your need for thiamine, but not the others. So you might have to megadose thiamine while you you don't need to megadose riboflavin and niacin in the same way, but you do, but you might get value out of them. Right, because if if you have a genetic mutation that compromises the thiamine binding site of this enzyme complex, it's not specifically increasing the need for B two. But if you also have suboptimal B two status, you're just going to make it all the worse. Right. So if you have any uh, hereditary weakness in any part of this pathway, you should be thinking about all of the cofactors, because if you have a deficiency or suboptimal status of any of them, you are going to make the situation worse 
but that doesn't mean you need to megadose all of them. So you really need to look at what's the specific dose I have. Is there any precedent that it's vitamin responsive? What are the doses used? And then you have to go by symptoms and ideally the correlation of symptoms and, and biomarkers to titrate your dose of the nutrients there. And so the, the, you have to separate what do you need to megadose and what do you need to just make sure you're not deficient or that you're optimal in. And that has to be based, hypothesis-driven based on the mutation. And then it has to be data-driven based on your symptomatic response and your biomarker response in well-designed self-experiments in order to optimize symptoms and biomarkers. Now, the last question is, does this influence your weight loss choice? Yes, it does, but perhaps not for the reason that you were asking. I can't, I can't tell why you were asking that. So if you were asking that because you thought your weight loss would be less effective um, because you can't break these proteins down, then not really. That's not, that's not really going to be a major impact. What is a major impact is that during weight loss, you are in a catabolic state. When you're in a catabolic state, you aggravate your deficiency in the pathway and you have a greater risk of toxicity of the intermediates, right? So if you have isovaleral CoA accumulating because you can't break it down in the next step, you have three problems. So you have four problems. One is you can't break this down. Um, the second problem is you have isovaleric acid accumulating, which can have toxic effects. Your third problem is you have CoA being sequestered and be, and you, you start leading to CoA starvation. And your fourth problem is that isovaleric CoA is a small enough CoA ester that can act competitively inhibit acetyl-CoA-dependent enzymes. One of those is the enzyme that activates the urea cycle, and so you can get secondary hyperammonemia as a result of this. So the reason that on a weight loss diet, you need to be more careful about potentially limiting your BCAAs and megadosing your, your megadoses and optimizing your other nutrients in this pathway is that weight loss will stimulate the possibility of toxic responses to the pathway and symptomatic problems due to low-level poisoning. <laughs> so, um, you know, just, but you can have a SNP in this pathway and be asymptomatic, but there is some precedent for wanting to optimize the nutrients, even in those cases, due to the potential for sub, uh, sub-symptomatic um, changes in brain health. So there, there, you know, there's, there's asymptomatic people that arguably should be treated with vitamins in order to not have a sort of like slow lifelong degradation of myelin and stuff like that. So I, I think you need to look further into what the mutation is. You need to figure out this megadose versus optimize for each of the vitamins. And then you need to say in weight loss, I need to double or triple my care for this pathway if I have evidence that I need to care about it at all because I don't want weight loss to increase 
my catabolic state and therefore cause more of a problem here than I than I would have in an in a weight equal state in an, in an isocaloric state. All right, thank you, Mel- Melanie, for your question. Hope that helped. This is a clip from a live Q and A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. If you want to become a Masterpass member so that you can participate in the next live Q&A, or so that you can have access to the complete recording and transcript of each Q&A session, you can join at chrismasterjohnphd.com masterpass. You can save 10% off the subscription price for as long as you remain a member by signing up at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com slash Q&A. That's Q&A spelled out as Q-A-N-D-A. These links are in the description.